This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me. This is your Need to Know Financial Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Candice Burke and apologies up front, guys, if my voice sounds a little bit off. I'm currently in uh, isolation dealing with COVID. And I'm Felicity Thomas and I've already had COVID over New Year's. Lucky me. Now, today (laughs) today we are joined by one of the best resource analysts in the Australian market. He has over four decades of experience, Peter O'Connor, who's actually commonly referred to as Rocky. So welcome, Peter. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Candice. Great to be here. So Peter is an experienced equities analyst specializing in the metals and mining sector. We're going to hear a lot about that in today's episode. And he's previously held positions as head of Australian metals and mining at Deutsche Bank, head of global metals and mining at Credit Suisse in their research department. And also he held held a similar role in Macquarie Bank. Prior to his roles within financial services as a research analyst, Peter previously held operational roles both at Rio Tinto for five years and BHP for five years also. But today his current role is head of our metals and mining research team here at Shore and Partners. And you have a Bachelor of Engineering in Mining and Mineral Engineering. So clearly you are the expert when it comes to rocks, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been spending a lot of time on. So yeah, I'm deep into that a bit. I must say you missed one of my, my jobs. I did Bank of America as well, head of the global mining team, try head of the global mining team. And you make me sound old with all those jobs, but I did start work straight out of school with BHP. Oh, good on you. <laughs> Apologies for that. Such a long resume. Got to miss one thing there. That's it. Now, you would also see his face all over Sky News Channel as well as Ausbiz as a viewer favourite because he's just that good. Thank you. Always through our, our episodes, we're going to talk a lot about companies and stocks and investment ideas. This is not personal advice, so please don't take this podcast as personal advice. Even though we are registered advisors at Shoring Partners, please go out and seek a professional uh, financial advisor for any of your actual investment decisions. So the first question I want to ask you, can you please give us a brief rundown of the current ASX resource market sector? What's been going on in the past few weeks, which you think is really important for investors to take note in their portfolio. Can I just start by saying it is a crazy, crazy world we live in right now. And the obvious things, the headlines, the thing that we read about every day, COVID. And that's been going for two years now. And I'm just a, uh, a victim of COVID myself. I'm at home working. But also the Ukraine's been obviously, um, we're deeply saddened by what's happening there, but that's extremely topical and driving markets as well. But Inflation as well has been a key thematic over the last little while. So they're the headline factors. They're what's usually driving the press every day and occupying most investors' minds. But behind that, there's a few important factors, and there's all to do with the inflation side of it. It's about interest rates. We're at the end of a 40-year interest rate cycle. Interest rates are starting to go back up. And in many of our careers or lifetimes, that hasn't happened. So uh, it's a big deal. And that's driving um, sector performance, equity performance, global share market performance. But it's also driving what I'll come to later, what I call a great 
rotation. And there's a rotation underway from what are called the long duration or the tech side of the market to the metals and mining or the value side of the market. So that's a big deal. And that's playing out at the moment. We're right at the inflection of that. So other things in the background, very, very near term are important to note. And one is because commodity prices have been quite buoyant of the last few weeks or few months, particularly in the most recent time with the Ukraine driving spikes in some commodities, there's a lot of um, talk about big upgrades coming in the resource sector. Earnings are going to be a lot higher, and that is right. I term them begrudging upgrades because there are two types of upgrades in the market. One's where, as an analyst or as a um, uh, firm like Sean Partners, we're ahead of the curve. We're telling everybody what's about to happen with the company, and sometimes you're just catching up. And unfortunately, things have been moving so, so fast over the last couple of weeks and months. Going back to that crazy world analogy, we as an industry are all just catching up. So a lot of this is already priced in. So be careful when you read headlines about, hey, wow, so-and-so companies just had a big upgrade. Sometimes that's already been priced by the market. And secondly, I talk about a term information asymmetry. Just be careful as an investor, as a professional investor or as a, um, a private investor, Always try and look at both sides of the equation and don't get caught up in um, looking at just the good news. And at the moment, we're starting to see a lot of good news coming out in equity markets, and particularly in my sector. But always just keep one eye open. Don't get blinded by the light and just check out if there is anything not so quite so positive. And interest rates I've already mentioned and commodity prices, you've no doubt heard or seen, there's been some squeezes in commodity prices, most topically in nickel. We have seen nickel price do things that we've never seen. Price I quoted a week ago at twice the highest level ever. So um. Just uh, a lot of noise out there as well, which gets back to that crazy world analogy. And it's important for us in this conversation to get to the bottom of what is actually happening and make some key recommendations. Yeah, definitely. Those are some really, really key important insights. Now, I do have a follow-up question from that. You know, everyone's talking about gold. Where do you see the gold price ending up by Christmas 2022? That's the hardest question to answer. I find gold very difficult to cover. <laughs> but what I will say, and this is an absolute fact, gold price will be volatile. Okay, that's the obvious thing. Between now and Christmas, it's going to trade around. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to shape the debate and I'm going to give you a range. And within that, I'll give you the probabilities where it should end up. Gold will likely trade. It's now sort of 1950 US dollars per ounce. Between now and Christmas, it's probably likely to touch a 1700 number. 1750, 1790. Why? As the US Federal Reserve starts to tighten the um, interest rates in the US, that will have a negative near-term impact on gold price. And the doomsayers, I call out, they'll say, hey, gold's now not worth as much because I can get a higher interest rate elsewhere, so gold price should fall. And on that basis, a drift back, it's probably more than a drift, it's probably a bit of a slide back to 1700s, is uh, worth it. I think that's the low range, but I just wanted to highlight, again, not being in this asymmetrical world, we only look at the good things. That's the downside. But where does it go from here? Again, going back to the uh, comment about the great rotation, we're also in a, a period where gold price may dramatically change as a store of wealth or, um, more importantly, the U.S., dollar where is likely to lose its reserve currency status. Gold will become more important. It could be because Russia starts saying to anybody who wants to buy gas from them, we want to get paid in gold. Right. And if you start doing a gold to oil ratio, gold price at $2,000 starts to look very reasonable and it could go to $3,000. So if I'm giving the upper bounds, it could be 3000 it could be 1750 But more realistically, trading around the $2,000 range, $1,900, $2,100 is probably likely. But if we do start, it's probably more a multi-quarter, maybe a multi-year event, but the US dollar 
is losing its reserve currency status, not least because of what's happening in the Ukraine and Russia, and that's a big deal. So I'm um, thinking about where gold goes from here. Gold price could go substantially higher. And again, $3,000, that could be a very low uh, increment from here. So that's interesting. So for our listeners, really, they need to take their own view on gold, whether they're a bull or a bear. Correct. Essentially, because you've, you've given us both sides. The bear case is not really, I've given you a 750 low number, but I'd also um, put out there, another key indicator is that gold is a store of wealth. And over time, as a US principal money, the value of gold will increase over time. And over the last two years, the US has printed more money in any one year than they ever have. In fact, going back to 2020, they printed 25% more paper than they had ever. There's a great correlation going back 60 years of gold price versus the US money supply. And that sets a base for um, the gold price going forward. And that base on that analogy should be around about the $1,900 level. So I've given you a 1750 low. Yes, that may be bearish. And yes, again, looking at all sides of the equation, we should think about that. But that would be more a volatile spike down, not a long-term trading range. And I think that $1,900 level looks well supported. But this change in the reserve status of the US dollar, that's a big, again, I've made that comment before, it's a big deal. So I'm um, upside from here, but gold's always volatile. That's why I find it hard to call. But a positive bias without question. We've just had obviously the Aussie reporting season just wrap recently. Did any of the gold companies that you do have coverage in, in in the resource sector signal that? I guess what were the key takeaways from your perspective in your sector? Because we're hearing a lot about supply chain issues caused by COVID. Was that reflected, do you think, in your sector? Okay, the key statement I want to make is that the gold sector locally and globally is cheapest of all the sectors that I cover without question. Okay, on evaluation, on any metric you choose to look at. So it stands out to me as a value biased investor. Gold looks really interesting. So I've got to look at what are the drivers, what's going to make this turn. And to your point from the last reporting season, companies don't like to forecast gold price because they find it just as hard as I've just articulated. And they just like to run their business and they enjoy the benefit of whatever gold price they get. But the themes from the, the last uh, reporting period were not surprisingly weather, La Nina. La Nina's been causing problems globally, but particularly in the Southern Hemisphere. So that was evident across iron ore, gold, and coal and other sectors in the market. Also COVID, just the impact of border closures, uh, rosters, the cost of that, and what that means to the business. But that's more a nearer term factor. And, and so is La Nina. And then the inflation that you raised, uh, inflation's a problem for everybody at the moment, but you and I as a consumer, but companies as well, the supply chains are tight. Uh, fuel cost is obviously going for fueled your car lately. I just paid $200 to fill my tank on the weekend, which is the most ever. Yeah. And it stunned me. So um, that's an important input to mining companies as well as labor. And it's not just the cost, unit cost of labor, but it's, it's having more people on site to cover COVID shortages and running different rosters. And those factors have said that the last reporting season had some what I call warts on it. It wasn't perfect across the entire sector and gold was just the same category. But importantly, the balance sheets look very good. And what do I mean by that? Most of them are in net cash position, minimal debt, and all companies are generating cash. So they're in a financially um, well-placed position going forward. So key messages, sector is healthy, free cash flow yields are good, balance sheets are strong. In most cases, they're still able to return cash to shareholders in the form of dividends. And that suggests the sector, which going into a market with a better price behind it, what I call a tailwind, they'll start coming out of the valuation cheap corner and they'll start heading up to a level which is more um, realistic. Now, how many stocks within the ASX fall within your sector coverage? And of those, how many are now in your research coverage? 
Felicity, my research is extraordinarily broad, and I don't mean that to brag, but to, to, to cover this space, well, you've got to know the moving parts. It's a global industry. So to answer your question, within my brief locally, there are 30 companies, the top 30. So I think from BHP, the top 30 companies below that, they cover BHP, Rio Tinto, all the gold, major gold names, and all the silos of um, nickel, copper, uh, energy, uh, aluminium, um, mineral sands, and some of the emerging um, battery-style minerals as well. So that's my sort of local coverage. But I also track 200 companies globally. Not in deep detail, but I, I watch them. I've got a watching brief on them. I get a lot of emails every day about them. So I'm just trying to understand what are the moving parts globally because what happens in an industry offshore is likely to happen here. If not, we drive them, they drive us. But I've also got to look at the macro and also the commodity environment. And in terms of macro, I talk about it's global economics. What's happening in the US? What's happening in Russia? What's happening in China? Who's buying, who's selling, and who's growing, who's not? And that feeds through to commodity prices. So in that wrap, that's how I kind of digest all of that into the 30 companies I cover. But specifically, my research coverage is 17 companies. And again, that's the top 17 out of that 30 list. So there's a lot of thought that goes into that 17 companies to get recommendations and views. Yeah, and I guess that's why your calls have been so good. Um, I know you did have a big call with regards to iron ore as well over the last year, which has been interesting. Yeah, look, it's uh, sometimes it's really obvious, the calls that stand out, and sometimes it's incredibly hard. And uh, there are moments when I get that incredible clarity. Iron ore was one of those. 2019, there was a, a dam uh, failure in, in Brazil. And I remember walking into a morning meeting and saying that, um, you know, firstly, with all due respect to the, the loss of life, and uh, we have to be very um, cognizant of that, but thinking about what does this mean beyond that, it was the starting point of a two-year journey in iron ore. And that was, um, I remember saying in the morning, this is a big deal. This is going to go uh, substantially higher. So um, that played out. Gold was last year. Gold and interest rates were the key play. And right now, there's this quirky one with um, the energy space. Who would have thought energy would be doing as well mm. as it is? There are different factors behind that. We can talk about that. But that's been one of my key calls lately as well. It's kind of counter-cyclical. That's been a key call as well. That's it, the poison and the cure with regards to energy. Now, a follow-up question. <laughs> Tell us the process and what's involved when you actually find a compelling business. How did you locate them? Walk us through your due diligence in evaluating if the business is a buy and one that you actually want to add to your research coverage. Okay, so look, I firstly, I'm a, I'm a value biased investor. A deep value biased investor. I'm, I'm a classic uh, personal investor. I just want to make money and I want to buy things cheap and sell them high. I understand the concept of momentum and there are a lot of momentum traders out there, both professional and personal. I get that and I can do that, but my, my strength is in value. So I look for value. I have um, a high level four point criteria to answer your question. And the four points are firstly, you've got to have a piece of dirt and that dirt's got to have something in it. <laughs> it's got to have gold or it's got to have coal or it's got to have iron. And that sounds really flippant, but we've all been um, spruiked in the past by people who don't have actually think anything in the ground, but they talk about it. So have some dirt, have something in it that's a value. Secondly, it's got to be in a location that's actually worthwhile. So it's got to be near infrastructure. It's got to be near labor. It's got to be in a country with the right um, financial framework. So location becomes important. Thirdly, it's got to be able to be financed. And again, in the current world with low interest rates, that's been quite easy. And equity markets have been quite willing to lend money. But it's got to be financial. And in saying that, I just make the um, a note that 80% of feasibility studies that are done in the metals and mining market do not work. Okay, I stress that 80% do not work. So cautionary note, when you hear somebody come out with, hey, we've got this great feasibility study, you've got to do a bit more digging. And the last one is management. And that's the really touchy-feely one where you've got to have a bit of history, you've got to do a bit of digging, and you've got to find out 
has that director been somewhere else? What did that director do before? What's that management team? Where have they been? What have they done? And try and piece that together. And those four factors will start to filter out a lot of companies. And then I get the valuation tools out. How does this thing look? So my short point there would be you've got to look at as many variables as possible. Some investors like the price-to-earnings ratio. Some love the EV to EBITDA. I know in the tech sector, my colleagues talking about sales are price-to-sales, which I find phenomenally uh, extraordinarily unusual to use, but they do. And then there's dividend yield. There's free cash flow yield. There's um, but The one I hinge most of my value on is uh, net present value or the, the, the fair value of a company based on its future cash flow. It's the Warren Buffett model. If you don't have cash, you don't really have anything out there. So I get to, then I start going off piste. I start looking at, okay, that's fine. I've probably filtered all this, but most people are probably doing the same. What is out there that catches my eye? So I try and steer off piste. And that's why I picked up gold about two years ago. I thought gold's looking fascinating because of interest rates. Energy this year, because of where um, the thematic was driving with the ASG uh, as uh, one of the um, moving parts. And then I also, I like to look where people aren't looking. So I'm usually looking, I have what I call a two-dimensional valuation matrix and I have value on one side and share price performance on the other axis and it comes up with a, a matrix of um, uh, where com- companies sit in the left-hand corner is called the naughty corner and I'm usually deep in the naughty corner looking for companies and then I know they're cheap but then I just try and identify what would make them turn, what tailwind do they need and that's what I look for. So that in a nutshell, is my valuation framework and how I identify opportunities. How do they get out? <laughs> Companies are in the naughty corner for a reason. The markets are always right, but it's what will make them get out. And um, invariably, people get super bearish at the bottom and they miss those opportunities. That's where I'm a bit of a bottom dweller, I guess. And so once you've gone through all of this due diligence and you've gone through your checklist and your four points you've just gone through, you know, walk us through, I guess, a typical day for you. How does it start? Are you sitting down with the important decision makers of these businesses that you do cover? I guess, talk us through the story. And it's almost like a marriage, right? You're, you're really knowing these businesses like the back of your hand. You've got to live it and you've got to be switched on all the time. Because the, point I, the, the key point I'd make is that this job has no closure. Your job, my job, everything we do changes every day. And you can never sit there and I call it there are jobs with closure and those that are, uh, have got a, um, like a finite goal. I never have that feeling like I've done everything because something will change tomorrow. The day I walk into work thinking I'm on top of it, something's going to happen, so I don't do that. And that's part of the thing I like about this job is that every day it's different. Um, you know, Ukraine, COVID, um, interest rates, gold price, Federal Reserve comments, um, anything. So um, closure, is, so if you, don't, if you need closure, and there are a lot of people out there that like that closure feel, this is not the job, but what does that mean? So every day I come in, I need to get on top of what's happened overnight. So sadly, I usually flick on my phone in the morning and I just check the news, what's happened. So I cycle the work, so that's my commute. So as I'm riding to work, I'm usually thinking about where I'm going to be looking that day. So when I get to work, I'm ready to go and I start doing a bit of a filter about what's happened overnight. Now, that sounds like everybody does that. It's pretty obvious, but it's amazing what you can pick up if you trawl what's out there and trying to join the dots up. So I get in early and I, I've got to be ready for our, our morning meetings. We have two. I have one with our professional investors, our institutional team, and one with our, our, what we call the proper morning meeting with our entire Shore and Partners team. And they're important parts of the day for me because I'm pitching ideas to you, which will then go out to the broader investment community. And I have to try and come up with an idea, but I call it a proposition to act. And I've got to deliver you a message which is um, succinct. It's hopefully in point form that you can pick it up. It's got a hook so I can get you on board and it's able for you to translate to somebody else. And those propositions, you know, some days they just aren't there. Some days they're fantastic. They're so easy, they just roll off the tongue. So um, 
I spent a lot of time in the morning getting ready for that morning meeting. So sometimes I get out there at nine o'clock. It's like, right, I'm just done. I've got to go for a coffee and just have a bit of a chill out. So you quite often see me downstairs with my iPad, just chilling out, going through Facebook or something just to have a bit of a break. But then um, you've got to get into the, the deep dive of um, keeping stuff up to date. And a lot of times thinking time, thinking about stuff. If you don't think, you don't do. If you just get on a treadmill, all you do is keep spitting out the same idea. So I try and fit in that thinking time. You know, I just joked about being downstairs, sitting on my iPad watching Facebook, but I'm actually thinking about stuff. What's going on? Where do we go? Then I get back upstairs and it's contacting people, Mm. contacting companies, contacting contacts in industry, finding out what's going on. And every phone call I make, I get an idea. And it could just be ring up a a gold company and say, hey, what's going on? What's happening with COVID? What do you think about gold price? Invariably, I get, I get a snippet, and that snippet, I get another one, and then I, I call it the round robin. Every phone call creates another idea, and then I'll then contact investors, personal investors, professional investors, uh, and try and create that loop, and obviously give them the propositions to act so they actually do act, and that's part of our job. So a lot of research and connecting people, really connecting thoughts, yeah, yeah. yeah. and then and then pulling all that together into a. In the morning meeting, it's about presentation, so it's about delivery, and then we have to have a product, which is a, a written product, so we then have to do a research piece, and that's, um, again, a lot of thought goes into that, how to write that so that you can read it, and you get that bang idea, and, that, and then an investor can pick it up and decide, yeah, I get that, that's that's totally fine, I'm on, on top of that, so you know, it, it's, I don't want to make it sound like it's hard, actually, I don't know, my job is not hard. My job is just, uh, there's a lot of it. So it just takes a lot of time to be on top of it. Seems pretty hard to me. <laughs> well, I, another comment I make, I only do enough to not make mistakes. Mm. But to not make mistakes, you've got to do a lot of work. So it's not hard, it's just, it just takes time. And I think a good uh, analogy, we always say there's lots of noise. Everything's quite busy in the, in the markets, in the news, in the media, scrolling on Facebook. And it's our job when you're in financial services and research, in particular your role, Peter, is to really minimize and cancel out that noise and focus on what's actually important coming back to the business model, right? So that's that's a really good insight into your typical day. And we're just going to switch tactics ever so slightly. So in a moment, we're going to be hearing more thoughts um, by Rocky on on China and in particular the relationship here in Australia because we are a big commodities market, the rise of ESG investing and, of course, what we're all about here at Talk Money to Me, his top pick in the sector. Everyone loves a good stock pick, so stick around for the interesting, compelling insights into that particular business. Now, before we hear anything further from Rocky, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Rocky, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on China and Australia. 
you know, we're quite blessed here in Australia with a a wide range of natural resources. But where do you see, this is going to be a big question, where do you see the relationship going in the next three, five, ten years with China? Short answer is the relationship is strained. Okay, that, that's the, the only way I could put it. It's not a, a relationship which I think is, is doing particularly well. It manages, and I think the corporates are doing a better job at managing the relationship than perhaps the political uh, top-down approach is. So that becomes a bit of a muddle. The point you made is important, and China's a, a huge buyer of our products, and, and we are unfortunately a quarry. You would have heard that, you know, Australia's a quarry for Asia. It used to be Japan and Korea and Taiwan, and about 2003, we became the quarry for China. And that's fine, but we've become quite dependent on that into the terms of trade, mm. trade partners, et cetera, so on. What you see at the moment, and it's not just happening with us, but it's happening with almost every country, it's security of supply and looking at your counterparts. So there's going to be a very big move where possible to start diverging or uh, differentiating your supply uh, your supply channels. For example, rare earth commodities and some of the EV commodities, the willingness for people to look for countries other than China will be important. So Australia's got a chance now to break out and do things differently. But the baseload commodities, coal, iron ore, China's still the biggest market. So um, we need to have a relationship with China which works I said strained, but it needs to be more workable. Mm. Will it be perfect? Probably never, but it just needs to be a working relationship that uh, can see trade occur and become this continuous book. Because we sell, we're the biggest supplier of iron ore to China. Now, that's a big part of our terms of trade. And can we sell it somewhere else? Probably not. So um, it's important that from a political perspective, we line up with corporates and we try and manage that. So um, yeah, China's key. I don't think it's negative, but it's certainly not perfect either. Here in Australia, it's very similar to a lot of Commonwealth countries. We politically align ourselves with the US and the UK, but financially, we're down here in the corner of the of the globe where we're we're yeah. Australasia, right? So you've nailed on the yeah, head. We we're part of Asia. We can't ignore China, but we need to make it a working relationship on both sides. Correct. And possibly the key is the renewable energy market, right? There's an opportunity there. There is. The, the, you see that emerging now with the lithium market, the graphite market, and particularly the rare earth market. And China controls 80% of rare earth. And that's something which I think every country in the world is going, that's probably not a, a good number. We need to reduce that. So and Australia's in a position where we could supply a lot more. And with government support recently, we are on the cusp of perhaps potentially setting up an industry which is not just a quarry, which typically would have been. We may actually be going further downstream, and I think that's important. So um, we've not been known for our industrial capacity beyond mining. So um, to do that is going to be not without risk, but it's certainly important. That's where we're we're heading towards now. Given the rise of ESG investing, alternative and green commodities and the renewable energy market, when do you think, if ever, we'll actually see the end to traditional fossil fuel burning businesses? You know, as a research analyst in resources, how do you actually navigate the ESG investment space? So ESG is Probably, the, I should have mentioned that right up front, that's one of the key curveballs as well when I talked about Ukraine and COVID and inflation. So that's clearly in the background. Ironically, in the last few months, that's changed quite a lot. So um, let me set the framework for this discussion. So um, fossil fuels, they are on a, a pathway to expiration, and I call it the slippery slope. Whether it's oil, gas, or coal, there's a journey which is finite. The angle or the speed at which that goes, that's debatable. A year ago, I would have said it was a lot longer, but the speed of change and the um, the speed of commitment to ESG investing, but also the EV technology suggests that that is going to be quicker. I would have said, again, a year ago that that curve or that trend line for uh, fossil fuels would have been multi-decades, 20, 30, 40. Now it's looking less, 
one way to frame that is it will likely last as a minimum the life of the, the duration of the life of power stations across Asia and across Europe. So, for example, there's a bunch of power stations, be it Taiwan, Japan, Korea, which will run for the next 25 years. So as a line in the sand, that's probably a starting point. So other peripheral products of fossil fuels, they'll uh, decline sooner as other power stations decline, but that's probably the longevity number. So Australia as a supplier of fossil fuels will still be in that game for a while, but it's not going to be at one or two years. It's definitely decades, but it's... um. It's not you know, three or four decades, which I would have thought previously. But uh, importantly, within that, you know, we do offer the best quality coal in the world, which is to a lot of people that doesn't mean a lot, and it, it probably doesn't. But in the near term, where we need uh, energy supply, that's not a bad outcome. But the long answer to your question is that um, with China and um, India being the two key fossil fuel burners in the world, it's really reliant upon them and how quickly they do this. And China burns the number of staggering nearly four billion tons of coal per year. Yeah, that that's disturbing. Four billion. So um, it's really in their hands, not ours. But the view I've given you is that we're on a slight, slippery slope, probably two to three decades away. It could hasten and be quicker in the short term. And again, the, the speed of technology change is extraordinary in the EV space. So um, and given disruption in other sectors, you know, it's likely to be quicker. So we'll all be driving electric vehicles quicker than you think. I hope so. That's part of it. Especially with the yeah. price of petrol now. It makes you want to switch <laughs> earlier, doesn't it? Just as long as you don't plug that electric vehicle into your PowerPoint, well, you think you're getting uh, clean clean air because you're not. there are a bunch of people who think they are and they're just getting it from the Hunter Valley coal-fired power station. So that needs to change as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's not as easy as just getting the EV car really, is it? No, it's part of it, but not all of it. That's really interesting insight because uh, last week we caught up with Tim Samway, the chairman of Hyperium, right? And he was saying very similar to what you're saying, Rocky. We can't just turn off burning fossil fuels tomorrow because a lot of markets and economies heavily rely on it. And I think the Australian opportunity here and hopefully our politics and the private sector and everyone jumps on board is the renewable play, right? You still need rare earth materials, metals and mining of some degree to do the EV play. So that's where I'm going to sort of switch it back to you and, and ask you that question. If you, let's say I've got a million bucks and I'm, I want to invest only in the Australian market, I guess pitch to me why it's important. We still got two, three decades, like you're saying, to not ignore the, the metals mining sector. Why do you think it's still important? Is it that opportunity in the renewable supply chain, do you think? Oh, okay. So let's um, break that question down. So metals and mining is going to be here forever. Okay. The segment, which is uh, fossil fuels, that's got a, a finite life. So let's just parcel that off to the side. In looking at that space, and I talked about my, my valuation framework before about the fair value of a company, all the companies in that sector were trading at deep discounts to fair value a few months ago. The price for their commodities were low, and all of the strains recently have seen their commodity prices move higher. So that tailwind they needed to get out of the naughty corner, they all got that. So they're all trading higher. So that's, that's carved off and say they're on a slippery slope, but they're going to trade. So it's going to be a, a cycle down that slippery slope, if I could put it that way. So we were at a low three months ago. We're getting twice to a high at the moment. There will be more journeys along the way. So if you're a trader or a momentum player, you've got lots of opportunities over the next 30 years just to play that opportunity. Mm. But if you're a value investor, they'll be less obvious. But um, metals and mining, we need that. And this is where I have debates even with my own kids about um, your iPhone. What does it contain? It contains a bunch of metals which you need to get from the ground. Your car, it, it's got a bit of steel and it's got some aluminium, it's got some magnesium, some manganese, it's got a bunch of stuff. Yeah, we're all on the internet now. How does the internet work? Copper. What do we need? We need copper mines. Uh, nickel, you know, I'm guaranteed if I went to your kitchens, there'd be stainless steel products in there. How do you get stainless steel? Nickel. So the key word is uh, metals, sorry, the key point, metals mining will be here forever. And I make that, I don't make that point lightly, but it needs to be sustainable. Yeah. 
And that's the key shift is that companies are learning they need to be more sustainable with the way they explore, the way they mine, the way they return mining properties back to the original state, and how we try and reuse commodities as well. So there's far more effort put into that. So um, that is important going forward. And companies have really, as part of their ESG framework, they're embracing that far more. So the metals mining sector, critical, be it from iron ore to make steel, aluminium to um, go into the the auto sector, copper to go into the internet, it's needed. And I talked about the sector being here forever, and I meant that. But I wanted to add a really important point. I said this at the very start, and I called it the great rotation, and that is so important right now. So um, the technology, if I just bundle everything up that's not mining, it's called technology, the long-duration, high-PE stocks. Those stocks have been the place to be for 10 years. Why? It's been easy money. And over the last 10 years, that group of stocks has outperformed the metals and mining P group globally by about 300%. So a 10-year period of our performance, 300%. Easy money, free liquidity. The last time they did something quite as that extreme was back in 97 through 2001, ahead of the technology boom. And that outperformance was about 65% over three years. So this period, and there'll be people in the market today who have never seen anything other than technology goes up, mining goes down. So I want to make that really clear. So the sector's here, and it's been here, it's been a driving part of Australia as a nation. It's an important bedrock of how we grow globally. So it's going to be here. But from a valuation perspective, there's this rotation. So high PE, long duration stocks are getting squeezed, and that's been underway for a few months. And the so-called rust-built commodity companies, which nobody liked, they're starting to get some attention. Why? Because they actually make money. They generate cash. Their free cash flow is actually real. And they're on PE multiples, which people go, wow, you're talking about 10? Don't we buy stocks on 30 times? That's where we are. And within that, from 2015, post the whole China boom, the resource market had a low back in 2015. So we've been on this seven-year journey already in absolute terms, but we've now got this relative trade on top of that as well. So the sector is looking well placed from a whole bunch of external factors as well. It's very important to have the right asset allocation and diversification within your portfolio. So I think it is good for listeners to not just have a full portfolio of tech, right? And actually do have your metals and mining in there. We are all about giving our investors and listeners compelling investable ideas, which display solid growth outlooks for the years to come. So within your coverage, what would be your number one stock pick right now and why? Okay, it's going to be BHP but I'm going to use some qualifiers for that. So, um, And these are important factors about any stock you like. Never buy a resource stock for a dividend yield. You probably heard me say that in many morning meetings. Why? Because it's a cyclical sector. And usually very high dividend yields are a warning sign that the cycle is about to turn over. So that's the first point I'd make. And next, you talked about a multi-year journey, something I should have mentioned up front as well. I like buying things for the long term. I don't trade. So I want to buy that opportunity. But my sector... Even with all that glowing um, commentary I'm just giving about the great rotation, it's still a cyclical sector. It follows the commodity and the economic cycle. Economic cycles don't go for decades, they go for three, five years. So within your question, there's this issue of cyclicality and some of the stocks I could have talked about will go up, but they'll probably come back down again as well. So I talked earlier about the uh, fossil fuel space. Those stocks have had this incredible run for the last three, six months. They'll likely roll over. So um, I picked BHP because it's got this incredibly – exciting story happening right now, like right here, right now. It's uh, 
this very nuanced, special situation where it's about to divest its petroleum business, and that's going to be this windfall for BHP investors. That's the first part. So right here, right now, you need to be in BHP as we speak. Secondly, their near term, they're enjoying the tailwinds of all of their peer group. The economic cycle is going in their favour. They, they have copper, they have iron ore, they have coal. All those prices are higher. They're generating an enormous amount of cash. That's great. So tick, but I can tick every stock in the sector for the same reason. Then if I look at where do they go longer term, they've actually got a great tail. And it's not just a cyclical tail of growth. They actually grow over time at pretty much the rate of global domestic production. And that's an important number. So if any company anywhere in the world can grow for multiple decades at equal to the gross domestic product of the Western world, that's a big deal. And they do. So um, it's not as sexy as some of the short-term stuff where some companies like the Pucci would be you know, three times, four times the GDP growth globally, but they'll deliver that over the long term. So they've got the tail, they've got the very near-term attractive um, factor, which I'll talk a little bit more to, and they've got a medium term, which is fine as well. And I gave the comments earlier about financial health, balance sheet tick, management, excellent management. New managing director started two years ago, done an outstanding job, and he's turned the company into what I call a Monday company. Have you ever heard the term about a Friday company? Everybody wants to just get the hell out of there because they hate working there. Or a Monday company, everybody just can't wait to be back at work. Like at Shore and Partners, we just all spend the whole weekend waiting to get back to work on Monday. BHP's become a Monday. BHP's become a Monday company, and I, I the CEO knows I make that that comment, and he actually uses it himself. So um, that's an important cultural change. He's actually leveraging the staff, and there's no better or more powerful factor in a company than cap, not capital, not the equipment, it's people. So he's embracing that. So let me get back to this why we've got to own it now. So BHP is about to sell its petroleum business. They've had that since the 60s, so this is a big change. They're selling it uh, by way of a demerger to Woodside Petroleum, another Australian company, and that transaction should run over the next two or three months. So BHP is selling about 10% of what its current business is at the moment in terms of earnings. There's a prearranged formula for how to work out the value of that company, which is agreed last year between Woodside and BHP, uh, subject to shareholder vote of Woodside shareholders on May 19, and completion of this deal in early June. Shareholders of BHP will get a, a windfall return. So how does that work? BHP sells a business, and instead of getting cash from Woodside, they get shares in Woodside. The Australian tax officer to BHP will allow you to give those shares to your shareholders as a dividend. So in early June, BHP shareholders are going to receive a dividend from BHP in the form of Woodside shares, but will also have franking attached. And that's an important factor for uh, professional and personal investors, so private investors. So um, the yield on that uh, return in June is somewhere in the mid-teens, so sort of 13 14 15%. Now, I know you're going to say, but Peter, you just told us, don't buy a resource share for dividend yield, and you don't. This is such a nuanced one-off event, and nobody's talking about it. So that's the other point I want to make. Not only is this an extraordinary financial outcome, nobody's talking about it. My professional peers are not on board this story yet. Overseas investors aren't even thinking about it yet, so it's not yet priced in. And that's when I talked about going off-piste. This is one of those off-piste ideas. People aren't talking about it, not thinking about it. They're not going off-piste yet. So um, it's an opportunity in terms of income. It's an opportunity in terms of this one-off trade. And the background story to BHP, I'm happy to be with there as well. So um, if I had to have, do a buy and hold, stick in the drawer for five years and not worry about it, I'm happy with that one. There are other very attractive stocks, but that's a good one. Well, Candice actually pitched uh, BHP in the Autopad uh, a couple of episodes back, and it was around $38. Yeah, $38.75. That's the only one in our Autopad at the moment, Peter, which is actually up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, no, CrowdStrike should be up, right? Or is that down still? No, we're we're pretty much long tech at the moment, um, apart from BHP. I agree with your sentiment. So just, I guess to wrap up, we're going to do a quick speed round here. First question, 
you, you mentioned, good point, don't buy a BHP just for the dividend. But what do we see in the next three years, the dividend kind of normalising to be? You know, 5%, not these double digits. Uh, yeah, a mining company like BHP, 3 to 5% would be a typical over-the-long cycle dividend expectation. And that's just been completely realistic. Yeah, and yeah. That's, still a great, yeah. that's still a great yield. And you put full, full franking as well. Correct. So you, you, you cover your tax. And I'm super keen to know, how did you get the nickname Rocky? Is it just your expertise? <laughs> is there a story behind that? It goes a long, long way back. Because he loves rocks. There is actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, it started back at Macquarie Bank over 30 years ago, and uh, they, I was the only person at Macquarie Bank that had any mining knowledge, and they started calling me a rock head, rock doctor, rock kicker, rock this, rock that, and over time it just got shortened. So it became an internal name at Macquarie Bank, and then it just went broader, and CEOs now answer my questions on conference calls and say, hi, Rocky. Really? Do your family do your family use it as well? Uh, it's funny. My family knows when somebody says a high rocky in the street, they'll know it's somebody from work. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of helps uh, work out the shortness. So they know it, but they don't use it. That's great. Um, now we have one very last, very, very important question. I think I know what the answer is going to be, but coffee, tea or tequila? Coffee. Yeah. Well, he kind of gave that it away earlier. <laughs> yeah. He needs his coffee, coffee to unwind. Coffee when he's looking at the metaverse, eh? <laughs> if you had said Shiraz, it might have been a harder call, but it's coffee. Oh, coffee. Coffee in the morning, Shiraz at night. That's a good answer. Yeah. That rounds me out. Yeah, that's the bookends of the day. That's it. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will as well. Thanks, Candice. Thanks, Felicia. Thanks for allowing me to be part of your program. What a great chat. He was so interesting. There are amazing insights that one, BHP is a good buy. Thank you, Autopad and Candice for pitching it when you did. That metals and materials are used in everything and they're here to stay. Think long term, guys. You know, as Rocky was saying, some of these trades are decades long. So it's it's good to know your business, stick to the conviction. He mentioned those four checkpoints and it's just about playing the long game. And then finally, you know, we're in this really unique position in Australia. We do have to manage that working relationship with China and it's, he's not a bear, which is fantastic to hear. You know, we, we need China as much as they need us. And I think Australia is uniquely positioned, hopefully, to leverage off the renewable energy market more and expand out on the great commodities that we do have here in the abundance in Australia. Another point that we really, really enjoyed is the fact that he actually showed how he picks a company that he wants to invest in. So I know a lot of you ask us about that. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shoring Partners, as always, today's discussion is not constituted as personal financial advice. You should go out there and seek your own professional financial advice by looking up a financial advisor And as always, you know, we're keen to hear your thoughts and feedback. So send us through your queries, guys. Now, you can also search for financial advisors on the Money Smart website. Um, Make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify, five stars. And remember, if you have any questions or want to ask us any questions, please contact us at tmtm at equitymates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. Stay safe, everyone. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. 
The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.